Hi guys, I'm Nicolette, and today Brian and I are here with Rachel Hers. She is a neuroscientist who focuses a lot on the science and psychology of smell. Hello, Rachel. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me on your podcast. So, Rachel, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, your journey to neuroscience and then eventually to focus on, on the sense of smell. Well, it's sort of one of those circuitous paths of least resistance, which started off with me meandering in graduate school, not really sure how I was going to be putting my interest together. And basically, I've always loved the combination of biology and psychology. And I was looking for a way to address both of those things. I came from a biology background. And I stumbled upon a paper that people use the sense of smell to manipulate mood. And this was at a time when nobody was doing anything like that. And they had a little paragraph explanation about how the sense of smell was directly tied to the emotional centers of the brain and had this kind of evolutionary basis in our responses to things. And that just stuck a chord with me. And I asked my supervisor if I could study this. And of course, he had nothing to, you know, he didn't know anything about it. Um, this was, by the way, at the University of Toronto. I'm Canadian. I'm dual citizen now. Um, and so we, uh, he let me do it. He said, here's the rope, go hang yourself. And I developed the <laughs> protocol uh, so, to examine. My first big experimental setup was to look at the differences between memories triggered by smells and memories triggered in other ways, because everyone always says, you know, smell is the best cue to memory. And I wanted to find out what that really was and if that was really true and, and so on. So that's, and the rest is history, <laughs> as they say. So... In your book, The Scent of Desire, I mean, this is really the focal point of that book, the, you know, the science and the psychology of smell. And I, I shared with you a personal story via email before, uh, before you came on about how, you know, a smell can bring me back into, I mean, I can go back to seven years old and I feel like I'm in that moment or I'm in the car and I can smell that, that you know, air freshener and I'm back in that very, very situation. So what is this? Can you tell us about this? I mean, there's got to be some sort of real science then to this. So absolutely. So it is true that our sense of smell is uniquely connected to the parts of the brain where emotion is processed, where emotional memory is processed, and where associations get formed. So what happens is once upon a time when you first experienced that smell, you were in whatever situation that was, and it was emotionally meaningful to you. And there was a link that was just established between that scent and that experience. And then subsequently, every time you smell that same scent, it immediately triggers that original association. And with that original association comes feeling because there's absolutely a direct path. So the first place in the brain after the olfactory bulb, which is just very kind of basic processing, that the next place in the brain that smell information goes to is the amygdala, which is the structure in the limbic system where emotion and emotional memory is processed. And the next little step is where the associations get formed in the hippocampus. So there's immediately this surge of of emotion and association. And none of our other senses have the same connection. So this is a very intimate, unique link. Could you argue that taste maybe is the next closest thing? No? No, so people always kind of mix up. I mean, people say taste when they actually always really mean flavor. I mean, not always, but let's say 99.9% .9 of the time because taste is really just salty, sour, sweet, and bitter. And then we could talk about umami and a couple of other oral sensations, mm -hmm. but everything else that you've experienced when you eat is actually from your sense of smell and it's flavor. So for example, when you eat bacon, 
It's just the taste of salt. It's the complex flavor, aroma of bacon that gives you the sensation of bacon, quote unquote, taste, but it's really from your nose. And what's happening is while we're chewing, the aromatic molecules that are in the bacon are being released into the cavity of our mouth. And there's actually an opening at the back of the mouth that goes up to the nose. You may know this from laughing really hard and something in your mouth comes out of your nose or, you know, that anyway, there's this open airway passage. And that's why, for example, when you have a cold and you can't smell or food doesn't quite taste right, that's because that airway passage is blocked. But anyway, so what happens is we inhale and the aromas come from inside our mouth and they go up into the nose where they land on the area where there the sensory neurons are. And then when we exhale, that kind of whooshes the air by and that's what triggers the sensation. So we have to breathe to be able to experience this. And one of the problems actually that humans have is the potential for choking while eating because we have this opening between our lungs and our, and our airway system and um, our mouth. So, but uh, the other positive thing to being able to have this open airway system is actually we can make the sounds for language. So in evolutionary terms, the possibility of choking was less uh, of a worry than the possibility of us being able to speak from the point of view of advantages. But anyway, we are also the only creature that has the sense of flavor because we have this opening airway. So for instance, a dog who has a fantastic sense of smell with their nostrils, they can sniff out all kinds of things way lower concentration than we can. They, while they're eating the steak that fell on the floor, all they're really getting is the salt that's in their mouth. They, may, they smelled it before they gobbled it up from their nostrils here, but they're not getting any flavor from inside their mouth the way we are. That's so sad, actually. <laughs> yeah. By the You're way- very I, lucky. <laughs> I did try your jelly bean thing where you hold- uh. your... <laughs> it, actually, it actually worked. I was like, wow. <laughs> You know, I was just like, let me, let me try this, which was really cool. Now, I have a question, right? So can thinking about something actually bring back the sense of smell, right? So you know how you recall- Reversing it, you mean? So can you yeah, reverse it? it? Yeah, basically reversing it. Because sometimes you think about something, all of a sudden you, you feel like you get that, you feel like you smell it and you're like, okay, it's not feasible that where I am that I smell that mm -hmm. sort of smell. Is it that you could recall it that deep? Is it that ingrained, I guess is what I'm asking. So the evidence really says no, that we can't, we don't actually have stored representations of smells so that we can conjure them without the source of the smell being there. But um, there are certain instances where it does sometimes seem to spontaneously happen. Sometimes it spontaneously happens in dreams. Like people will say, I, very, very rare, but people will say, I, I was smelling such and such while I was dreaming. And it really wasn't the case that anyone was baking anything or doing anything in the kitchen while that was happening. So it is, does sometimes possibly does happen, but we really don't have in general any stored representations. But sometimes because like if you have an extremely strong experience, what I think is going on is you're getting kind of the whole gestalt of that original experience coming back to you and kind of a feeling of the smell comes with it but I would say most likely it's not really the same thing as if you were smelling it again right there and then. Right. I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning. You said that experience was was meaningful to you. Now mm -hmm. you could almost argue that 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 sense can teach you things about yourself then because you know for example i'm just going to use a random example about um you know chicken cutlets and when i smell chicken cutlets i feel like i'm you know my 
my grandmother just walked in and she was cooking chicken cutlets and I can feel this, but I didn't realize that that was that meaningful to me. You know, I just kind of interpreted it as grandma was cooking dinner, but I must've internalized some, something, right? So you can almost learn a little bit about what meant something to you if you have that sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, but you know, some of the things, so it's interesting that you say that with chicken cutlets, because one of the, the issues usually is, is that when we have these significant personal associations, it's usually for a scent that we don't encounter all the time. So, you know, it could be a special perfume or you're out walking in a certain place and there's a certain outdoorsy smell, or there's like something more specific, but things like foods like chicken or smells like coffee or chocolate, they're very unlikely to be connected to a personal specific event because we experience them so often. They get associated and associated and associated. So it's like, I, I like that smell because it's mm -hmm. good food or it's a good drink, but it's not something as specific. But so it's interesting to me that you said that. So maybe there's a particular preparation. That is, I was just going to say, oh, it's, yeah. it's this specific, um, you know, when, 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 a secret recipe. yes, when there's enough Parmesan cheese used yeah. and the oil and, and kind of the environment, it's one of those like muggy days in the house. And it's, it's this perfect, um, you know, this perfect combination that kind of all of a sudden smells like grandma's chicken cutlets, not like my chicken cutlets. I can't manage to get them that way, but it's, <laughs> Well, okay, so that's perfect. So you have a special recipe ingredient yes. set of things. And, and like you also said, kind of the ambient environment too. And one of the things that's important for us to be able to kind of link back, like why is, what's, what's going on with this smell? Why is it making me feel a certain way? Is the context that we're in. So we could smell something. Let's just say you smelled that smell, but you were in the subway. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> unlikely that you'd go, oh my God, that's my grandmother's chicken cutlet. You might, but it would be probably because of the external environment, kind of hard to, you know, you might say, I like that smell. Um, it's kind of familiar, but I don't know what it is. But when you're in the kitchen or when you're in the home and it's a similar kind of situation, then you can piece it back together. So there's a combination of kind of the external world that we're in at the time and, and the scent that goes with it. Because smells can be so many different things. We need to kind of figure out what it is as a function of the environment that we're in. So is it more too when you're like, I mean, and uh, this is me just asking a question, right? Is it more, you know, because you, you, you define it as like if you're in the subway, you're not going to almost recognize it or whatever the case is mm -hmm. or trigger it. So is it when you're more sort of at calm and peace or do you see what I'm saying where things are more, even there's not as much information coming in that it's more likely to trigger it if, you, if it's the same smell? Um, I don't know that it has anything to do with like, if you're just, you know, in a more calm versus frenzied state, I think it really has to do with, I mean, if it were like a really distinctive, very specific smell, it probably wouldn't matter if you were in the subway or walking down the street or in the proper environment, because it would be so like specific and there's nothing else that smells like that. But if it's a bit more general, if it could kind of be this, or it could kind of be that, or maybe meaningful, or maybe not, you need to kind of have the, the general environment for you to kind of figure out the, the source and the context of it. So I don't think it has to do with being calm or paying more attention necessarily, because I've certainly had that experience and many people have told me sort of just kind of randomly being hit. It's almost like being slapped in the face, like, oh my God, there's that scent. And oh my God, I'm, I'm back to wherever. And you realize that the situation you're in is also kind of connected to that. Um, but I don't think you, so I don't think it has to do with being sort of in a particular meditative state, but it is the case that the more we pay attention to smell, the more we can smell. So 
attention to smell, appreciating smell, we actually use more of our brain to smell and we can smell better as a function of that. Oh. So our, our smell ability is improved. <laughs> That's interesting. So what else do we not think of when we, with this scent, uh, with the sense of smell? You know, what are some other things that, you know, we're not aware of? I mean, I'm sure people are aware that scent can trigger emotion, but are there other things that maybe we're not thinking about? Um, I would say absolutely yes. I mean, people don't realize most of the time that our sense of smell is actually involved with everything that we do. So our sense of smell, uh, we've already talked about, involved with our experience of food. Um, it is involved with our memory and having associations and emotion and you know making us feel good or bad. And by the way, sort of aromatherapy works as a function of the fact that you have a prior association to the smell and the emotion, whatever that is, if it's relaxing, you feel relaxed. If it's invigorating, you feel invigorating. But if you've never smelled that smell before, it's not going to do anything for you. So it's not like a drug where oh, I smelled it and magically felt rejuvenated or something. So the lavender will not make you go to sleep is what you're saying. <laughs> If you don't have any association to it, and that's actually why like marketing is really, really important with these kinds of things. So if I package my lavender as soothing, calming, relaxing lavender scent that will put you to sleep, it's much more likely to put you to sleep than if I just gave you a bottle with no, nothing on it at all. You had no idea what it was. Right. So, so that's just a little aside. But the other things that smell is involved with, so it's involved with our personal life, very much so. So it's involved in our bonding with other people, our bonding with our children, it's involved with our sexual uh, life, it's involved with feelings of intimacy, feelings of sexuality and desire. It's also actually involved in a variety of aspects of our thinking. So general memory and also spatial orientation. So our ability to kind of navigate in space and to do more kind of complex spatial things that's actually connected to our sense of smell. And it's in general connected to everything that makes us feel who we are. So people who've lost their sense of smell feel this real loss of connection, not only with the outside world, but also with themselves. And this kind of sense of like disjointedness and it's very distressing actually. So it's very much fundamentally connected to every aspect of our quality of life. And the sad thing is that most people really don't pay much attention to it. And then if they have the misfortune of losing it, they then go, oh my God, I had no idea. This was so connected to everything that I do and feel. So we take it for granted. I mean, that's the reality. We really do. I, it, was, it was interesting um, how you said about navigating, you know, how it plays a role in navigating. I almost pictured a dog trying to scent yep. out, you know, smell where he's going. Is that really what we, I mean, what we do in a sense? Yes. I mean, there's actually been experiments where they have people tracking chocolate and they do the kind of same sort of thing as a dog does to track the chocolate to the location. And other studies that have shown that if you put like different smells in a room and you blindfold the person and they have to kind of orient to certain things, they actually use sort of a, an odor spatial map to be able to go to the right places. And the way, the part of our brain where the associations take place, I remember I, I said that's one of the most uh, intimate connections. That's also the part of the brain where spatial mapping occurs too. So that's very interwoven in our sort of general orientation with the world. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. So, 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 sense of smell is probably one of the, and I'm, I'm probably saying this wrong, but one of the deepest rooted parts of our brain. Correct? Is it? Yes. Yeah, so, um, it's so it's connected to the limbic system. The limbic system is this more primitive part of the brain. 
that is involved in sort of like I've already said, emotions and motivations and so on. But actually, so our sense of smell, it is the most primitive sense of all senses in any organism. So a single cell amoeba, the very, very first organisms on this planet actually had a chemical sense, which, and that's the only sense they had and smells are chemicals. And so they knew go towards this chemical cause it's good to eat it, get away from that chemical cause it's gonna eat me. Um, and that's the very basis of it. And actually in terms of the neuroevolution of our brain, the part of the brain where now it is the different structures of the limbic system was originally just dedicated to processing chemicals, to processing smells. And so through evolutionary development, we get these separate structures and then we get the other parts of the brain on top of it. But something that I like to think about is that we may not actually have had the experience of emotion. We may not ever have evolved it if we didn't have a sense of smell because the part of the brain where emotion is processed comes from the part of the brain where smell is processed. And another thing is that what smells tell us and what emotions tell us are fundamentally the same. So emotions are about helping our survival, about you know, good emotions make us you know, stay happy, stay in the situation, go forth and multiply if we can. Um, and bad emotions help us to get away or fight or retreat or protect us from things that are threatening to us. Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes for our sense of smell. It's telling us about our environment, what's good out, out there and what's bad out there at a very basic kind of visceral level. Is that why, like, you could sort of sometimes, like, if someone's sick, you could sort of smell that they're sick and you go, okay, I don't need it, right? I don't want to go there. Or if you could smell uh, pheromones, what is it? When, you know, yeah. You, I think, yeah, you mean pheromones, but that's... Pheromones, there you go. Nah, uh, uh, pheromones don't exist. <laughs> so, in humans, I mean, they... Know. <laughs> pheromones, pheromones are a form of chemical communication, and many species of animals, including other primates, use it and for determining like what's going on with other members of their same species. And it's, you know, very involved in, for instance, other primates, sexual behavior, other mammal sexual behavior. And there's been like the search for the Holy Grail of, you know, the human pheromone. <laughs> so, but that, it doesn't work that way. Um, not to say though that body odor, I've done research showing that. Yes, I read your, I was Yes. Yeah. Can have definite sort of sexual attraction or aversion qualities. Mm -hmm. But what you said before about the body odor of or, or breath odor of illness, so that's actually something really, really interesting. So first of all, your sense of that not being good is something that you've learned. Like basically you've learned that that person's body odor, breath odor doesn't smell right or normal what the way it usually does, so there must be something wrong. But mm -hmm. if you never smelled it before, you wouldn't know that it was like something wrong. Gotcha. But, the, but the really interesting thing is that it was the case that doctors used to really use their nose for diagnoses. So there are certain physical conditions like diabetes um, and various other kinds of illnesses that have very characteristic body odors that are, are breath odors that are produced. And that's how the doctors were able to diagnose specific different kinds of illnesses. And something that I'm personally extremely interested in trying to explore is whether or not for COVID-19, there is a distinctive body odor that maybe could be used as a way of detecting it or diagnosing it compared to, let's say, just having a cold or a flu mm -hmm. or a regular kind of other sort of illness. So as I'm sure you all know, that one of the symptoms of COVID-19 is losing your sense of smell. Mm -hmm. And at least it's fortunately seems to, in the most cases, be just a temporary thing that that resolves as soon as the other symptoms resolve. Although some people still seem to be having lingering 
Yeah. Loss of smell, but we haven't had this disease around long enough to know how long that's going to last. So that's actually, I'm working on a project to use that as a diagnostic before. Sometimes the people can be totally asymptomatic from COVID-19. And the only thing that they have as a symptom is losing their sense of smell. And because there's such a big deal about being able to track and isolate mm -hmm. and quarantine the people who have it so that, you know, the infection drops, it's really critical to be able to identify those people so that they're not, you know, potentially infecting other individuals. But if it's also maybe the case that your body odor changes in a particular way, that would also be really amazing because then you could figure out, you know, doing some kind of sort of chemistry test of your body odor, whether or not you had it or somebody else had it. And um, that would be another great way of being able to identify individuals. And how do you test body odor? Just out of curiosity, I'm very, very intrigued. <laughs> so, well, I mean, there's a couple of, I mean, you can test the actual components. So it's, it's an odor, which means that it's chemicals and you can actually do a chemical analysis. And uh, you've probably heard of dogs being able to die, to detect diseases. Yeah. So like lung cancer and other different kinds of cancers, they, mm -hmm. they train dogs to be able to detect by presenting, by training them like, okay, these are all like one set of smell and basically learning this one smells different from the others. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they learn that the different smell means that th this is something that right. they need to pay attention to. So they will point or indicate that that's, that's wrong. So they have, let's say, they know that, let's say, the person with bladder cancer, I'm going to use kind of a gross example, but if I had urine from 10 people and nine of them were healthy and one of them had bladder cancer, you would know that there was something different about that kind of smell from that urine, the dog would have been trained already to know that that was different smell. And then it would recognize that specific set of difference from the other odors and be able to identify it. And they're actually already in some places I read using dogs to be able to sniff out COVID-19, the virus itself, or the coronavirus itself, um, I'm presumably using some sort of the same kind of technique, but it would be somewhat different if it was kind of coming off of you. Like, so you're sick and your body chemistry changes. And I've actually heard anecdotally from people telling me who've had COVID-19, not, you know, in a very serious case, but enough that they were obviously feeling sick and that they felt like their body odor was somehow weird and different. So I do think that would be, I mean, unfortunately, it's not like necessarily going to be a super speedy test, um, but, but it could be something that the individual themselves notices or someone tells them like, you know, you seem to smell a little strange. Um, and then that would be just right, you know, right now, well, the biggest thing we're worrying about is isolating oneself. If we think we're infectious just to protect other people, then that would be like the first sign. Okay. I'm going to self quarantine and I'm going to get a proper test as soon as possible. So do you think, do you think, I mean, you mentioned dogs, right? Sniffing out certain types of diseases or things like that. And, you know, um, do you think eventually that will go to like AI where you'll have sensors that could pick up these things and artificial intelligence will go, Hey, you know, based on scent, you know, or, or those chemicals, cause it could pick it up out of the air, just like the dog is, you know, ingesting or ingesting that, sm but smelling that smell. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, is the future really like artificial intelligence being able to pull those out of, your home, you know, a sensor in your home that goes, okay, someone's sick here, you know, or someone has. Well, the future is actually now because th that these kinds of things already exist for detecting spoilage in food mm -hmm. and even certain containers in food. Uh, I don't have any in my house, but I think that they exist. We'll have a little thing on them that will tell you when the, whatever in the can has gone bad. And basically what it is, is detecting chemicals, which would signify now this is 
gone off or it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's starting right. to rot or something along those lines. And even supposedly there are refrigerators now that can tell you when you're supposed to throw out your milk or whatever else because, and it's literally just detecting chemicals that are specific to the smell of, let's say, fermentation or some kind of decay. But the thing is you have to first program Yes. The refrigerator or the computer or the little robot that's going to be doing our grocery shopping for us in the future um, to recognize what those scents are. So first we have to determine what is the smell of, let's say, this particular illness or what is the smell of this particular food going bad or whatever. And then we train or just put into the algorithm of the computer. When you detect this, then you know signal, you know, not good or whatever the case might be. So it's, it's basically, we have to learn it first and then we can, can teach the dogs and we can teach the AI. <laughs> right, and that's interesting too, because if you use the example of a refrigerator, right, we've all had that experience where you open your refrigerator and you're like, oh, what is going on in here, right? And then you got to smell like 15 things before you <laughs> out. So I can see the refrigerator even knowing the difference between this is spoiled milk. How much old food do you have in your fridge, right? <laughs> my fridge is always pretty empty. I mean, until recently. <laughs> But, uh, you know, um, but yeah, but sometimes you open it and like, what is that, you know, what's that smell? Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So that right now, I think the really, really smart refrigerators can tell you the difference between if your chicken cutlets, you know, are way past <laughs> edible or your milk is, is spoiled. But I don't think that they can do too much more complex stuff than that. But it all depends on how much we want things to do these things in the future. And I think the AI for detecting illness Mm -hmm. would be really, really useful, especially as, you know, the worry about other infectious pandemics. I'm, we're in, I'm sure this isn't the last one that we'll see in our lifetime, unfortunately. So I would like to go back to something you said. You said scent, you, you brought up scent marketing and how, and marketing when it comes to, you know, lavender and, and things like that. So what is, you've, you've, I've, I was looking through your website, you've talked about scent marketing in other places. What exactly do you mean by scent marketing? So scent marketing can be used in a variety of ways. It can be used, first of all, just to help draw customers to your product that actually is scented. So for example, coffee shops will use the scent of coffee to you know, be outside of their storefront or extra amount of smell like Starbucks doesn't just have tons of coffee brewing everywhere. It's actually using often the scent of coffee to make the indoor store ambience more coffee-like, and also even sometimes bringing in the, like shooting out the air from, from within to out to kind of bring bypassers by into the store, like, oh, I smell that, oh, now I want it. And a classic one that does this is Cinnabon. Yeah. So, since you're in New York, you know, for instance, Penn Station has this little Cinnabon kiosk, at least it used to, and there's no baking cinnamon buns happening in that kiosk, but that <laughs> smell is just overwhelming and amazing. <laughs> I think the smell is better than like the eating of the cinnamon bun. Mm -hmm. but, um, but that smell is actually coming from an aroma generator that's producing <laughs> that scent that's like luring us by the nose to come and buy the stuff. So that's one, that's a very simple kind of way. And restaurants will sometimes do this too. Like, you know, restaurants will like, um, the ones that have like a lot of Italian cooking, for example, I'm thinking of certain chains right now where they might pump out sort of that kind of garlicky aroma. Mm -hmm. And that might be like a way of luring in customers. So that's very kind of literal basic kind of thing. The next step is basically taking a product that you sell and it's easiest done if you, your store is just, let's say one type of product like high-end men's clothing. And 
then we don't have a literal scent, but we have a scent that's somehow connected to the idea that this is high quality, high fashion, high value, you want to spend a lot of money. And so it could be some kind of a, actually Thomas Pink did do this with a kind of a fresh linen kind of a scent mm -hmm. that, that, and so putting that inside their stores, so having it pumped through the HVAC system. And when people come into the stores, so customers feel like there's something different about being in here. I'm kind of, and, and I actually feel like the quality of the merchandise is improved as a function of that. So people honestly feel like this does improve the quality of the merchandise. And the interesting thing about that is that if you took a scent, let's say fresh linen scent, and I gave it that to you, and I gave you a bunch of other smells and you rated them for how pleasant and, pleasing and nice and attractive you thought they were, you could rate a whole bunch of smells equally pleasant and pleasing, but only, let's say, very few of those would actually work in the environment. And again, this is the idea of context. So let's just say I had cookie dough smell as one of the smells. You're like, I really love that smell. But if I was in a high-end men's clothing store, you'd be like, no. And actually it can backfire and make you think, this clothing is crap. <laughs> uh, and you don't even necessarily understand why, but there's this incongruence between the environment that the scent is producing and, and the product. And so people actually dislike that. They'll spend less, they'll spend less time in the store. They'll think the quality of the product is lower. So you have to get the right concept for the product to match with the scent. And sometimes this is difficult if you're not dealing with something literal and the uh, literal in terms of having a scent associated to it. And also difficult if you have a store that sells multiple kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So certain kinds of products have stumbled more with trying to get the right scent. It also depends on your demographic. Like if your consumers are 20 somethings, you know, live in the city, have a certain kind of income, that would be potentially a different scent than if you have suburban housewives who are in their fifties mm -hmm. who would be looking at the same kind of product. Or, you know, so there's a whole lot of things that have to go into this and a lot of usually testing and often companies don't really want to do all that work and they try something and it can either work or, or backfire. Mm -hmm. And then the third level of scent marketing actually has to do more, again, going into the kind of ambient space. And this is done more with hotels and resorts where uh, you probably had this experience, you walk into the lobby and there's a scent there. And it's kind of, in that case, creating both an ambience that makes people feel like, oh, this is special and nicer than it might have been if there weren't a smell, but also creating a scent logo. And this is especially key if it's a, some kind of a chain of hotels where you have, let's say, the same scent in the lobby of all the hotels, and then you have this kind of common thread that connects you to the brand. So that's another way that, that can be done. So you're almost creating, you're almost creating that sort of memory with the scent of the hotel yeah, exactly and something i recommend is if they can you know often um hotels will have their own signature soaps or perfume mm -hmm. like shampoos or whatever and if they can use that scent in the little things that we all steal when we stay at the hotel <laughs> and then bring them back and then we go oh i'm using that soap from that fabulous resort i stayed at that's reminding me of the vacation and I'm going to book another vacation there now. So right. kind of work to create like continued loyalty and also remind you to go there again. So I want to talk about one last thing. And I mentioned I was, I was watching your TED talk and um, you talked about perfume and cologne and birth control and hormones and all of these things and how you could almost pick the wrong mate because you mask all of your scents with all of these perfumes and colognes <laughs> and, and things like that. I just wanted to touch on that for a second. I found it a little comical and a little sad at the same time. <laughs> sure. So 
So briefly, what's going on there is that we have, so our body odor, everyone actually has a unique body odor unless you have an identical twin that's eating the exact same food as you. And that's because our body odor, just like we were talking about before being something which changes with sickness, our body odor is actually the external representation of the genes of our immune system. And everyone is ever so slightly different unless we have an identical twin in terms of those genetics. And so our body odor is this external manifestation of that internal blueprint. And our immune system, not only does it help us fight off illness and things like this, but it actually also is what determines um, what the health of an offspring, our child would be because they're gonna inherit some of your immune system genes and they're gonna inherit the immune system genes from the person who is the, the mate. And so what you wanna do in terms of having the healthiest children is, is mate with someone whose immune system is different from yours so that you don't double up on anything nasty that you might be carrying and that you maximize the coverage of possible diseases that you're protected from and other kinds of things. So you wanna mate with someone whose body odor is different from yours and whose therefore internal genetics of their immune system is different. And we have a sense of this, not from sort of recognizing, not that we're doing this chemical analysis, but basically what it is, is learning the difference that we have from our just general experience of the smell of family versus the smell of not family. And in a way, this is like an olfactory incest avoidance mechanism. So when you smell people that are more genetically related to you, they smell more family-ish and they're more familiar. And the, those are not the people that you want to have babies with. When you smell someone who smells different, those are the people that you want to have babies with. And so that's kind of the general mechanism. A lot of studies have been done in animals looking at this, and it's really interesting. It, and it's really based on recognizing the smell of kin, mm -hmm. because this research has shown that if you take mice, for example, that are genetically identical, like brothers and sisters, and then you take out, let's say, the males that are literally the, the brothers of these mice, you stick them in another cage from birth, and you bring in another set of males that are actually genetically different, and they, these mice grow up together, males and females, and then you give them the choice of who do the females want to mate with, and by the way, it's always the females who make the choice. <laughs> um, and you bring, the, you give them the brother that they grew up with, but whom they are actually genetically different from, because they just were cross-fostered with that, that little mouse, and the, versus the brother, real genetic brother that they didn't grow up with, they'll actually choose their real genetic brother because that smell is different. So it's not about recognizing who you are. It's about recognizing the smell of the family that you grew up in and, and the smells that are familiar like that. But anyway, um, what happens with modern society, the culture we live in now? So first of all, we have all these artificial fragrances that we like to put on and they make us feel good and, and that's great. And they're appealing to the opposite sex and the same sex and whatever. And they're, that's all great. But they can mask our natural body odor. And especially in the beginning of courtship, your people are more apt to be, you know, grooming and putting on, you know, <laughs> makeup. out the window later. <laughs> well, yeah. So, that, so but then, it, then it's too late. So what happens is you meet this, let's say, I'm going to take the perspective from the female side um, in a heterosexual context. And so I meet this guy, you know, everything's great about him and he has smells amazing. I love his cologne. That's yeah. just him. And I don't know what he actually really smells like. <laughs> And I fall, fall in love with him, everything is wonderful. 
you know, time goes on, we like decide we're going to have children. And at this point in time, you know, no one's showering or wearing cologne or whatever. We've given up, as you just mentioned. Um, but it's too late because I fall in love with him anyway. And now the, anything connected to him is, is positive. But if I had initially known his scent, and let's just say that with his body odor was signif signifying an immune system that was too similar to mine, if I would have known that, I might not have been so attracted to him because actually scent and especially for women is a real sexual turnoff if it's wrong then it's like you're not getting past this barrier it's like a there's no way um it's it's like a physical repulsion that cannot be breached unless you know except for by force and that really has and it's not just like oh the person's not clean this really has to do with there's something really wrong about the scent and for whatever reasons for that person and if you would have recognized that at the beginning, you wouldn't have gotten to the level that you are. And the problem that this causes is that when you have immune system genetics that are too similar, well, first of all, I told you that there could be problems with the, with the child having you know, good health. Um, it also is the case that as a kind of nature's protection, it's more likely to lead to miscarriages and in, in infertility. So that the actual sort of nature is kind of saying, you don't want to Get <laughs> don't do <back>. it. <laughs> so it's actually preventing, you know, the, the couple from being able to get pregnant and so forth. So there, so there's sort of that issue that can stem from it. And the other thing that can potentially be a barrier or kind of modern day sort of uh, red herring is the birth control pill. So birth control pills actually change the hormonal state of the woman who's taking it. And one of the things that's been shown to have an effect on is that it actually makes women find the scent of family more attractive, more sexy, or that is to say the scent of, of body odor from more similar immune genetics than the scent of body odor from more dissimilar, from more different immune genetics. And the reason, and so therefore you could, if you meet, meet, met someone and you were on the pill, you could potentially find the body odor of a man who is more genetically similar to you, attractive, and that could also end up being bad. So you, then you go off the pill and you're trying to start a family and you're like, I can't get pregnant. And it's potentially because of this. And the reasoning has to do with the fact that this is based on a, a, a mammalian response where when um, a female is pregnant, let's say using rodents again, and a strange male comes into the vicinity the female can actually spontaneously abort the litter that she's carrying to prepare for being impregnated by the, the new male. Because what typically happens is if she doesn't do that, then he eats them anyway. And uh, so it's kind of like preventing, <laughs> preventing that from happening. We, we just get rid of the, the, the little babies before they're born. And the idea here is that, and also that when females are pregnant, it's safer for them physically to be around family than around strange males and so forth. And so the idea is because the birth control pill is essentially mimicking a state of pregnancy hormonally, it's somehow directing women to being more attracted to smells that are more like family. This is the theory in any case about why this works that way. So. Wow, that was so fascinating. <laughs> I think this is the highlight of my month and a half right now. I got to tell you. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> like your husband, no more cologne. I got to. <laughs> I need to smell you. Make sure we're still genetically compatible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, it's usually you know yeah, too late. Too that late. Way. 
But you know what's really interesting too is that when couples are going through divorce mm -hmm. uh, and in therapy, the number one complaint complaint from women about their husband is, I mean, apart from he's a jerk and this and that, is I can't stand how he smells. <laughs> Seriously. And it's like the new, first, it's a combination of things, I think. First of all, potentially they met when she could have been on the pill or there could have been other masking of body odor and so forth and that no longer exists. But now the negative emotions of him being such a jerk or whatever else are associated to his smell. And now it's like impossible to go forward. And, and you know, the only kind of resolution for that, if the, if the marital counseling really has a chance to succeed, is if the guy gets a new scent. So it's like, go out and buy a new <laughs> fragrance that your wife really likes and see if you can like reconnect positively to that new scent. Does this work the same for men as well? I mean, or with the smells, or is it really just women? Are uh, so, so the so the issues are a little different for men versus women in terms of the whole biology of reproduction. I mean, men care about how women smell. No right? offense, Brian. I just figured, does it really matter? At that? Look, I don't, well, I don't cologne <laughs> or underarm deodorant, but I eat clean, so I'm good. <laughs> So basically what it, so men care about how women smell and it's a, it's a feature of attraction, but it's not as important for men as it is for women. And it's not as important biologically. So this all stems back to evolution and biology again. So the whole thing is based on, on the likelihood. So this goes back to the idea of selfish gene and the goal for existence is to get copies of your genes out in as many times as possible so your genes are like the powerful going forth and multiplying and that's survival of the fittest and for women the most important thing is that those children that you've invested like nine months of being pregnant with, and then you have to spend at least a year, this is before formula and other kinds of things, because when a woman um, gets pregnant, she stops lactating. So if a woman got pregnant too soon and there was no other food around, then the infant would starve. So there has to be like at least another year before the infant can like be eating things besides that. And so women have this big chunk of time that they devote and huge amount of energy resources and increase of vulnerability physically, all kinds of things. So being pregnant, having a baby, is, is very costly um, from a female perspective in terms of what goes into it. So that's why the most important thing is that that infant that I spent all this energy in promoting to survive lives to be able to reproduce herself and have babies and so on and so forth. But for men, because until the advent of genetic testing, they could never be sure that that little baby was actually his or yours. The best strategy for you is actually to mate with as many females as possible and therefore increase this chance statistically that your genes are going to be out there in the population. And that's why actually men rely most on vision, that is to say how the woman looks, as the biggest key for attraction because all the features of sort of um, fertility are actually what we consider to be physically attractive in a female. So certain hip to waist ratio, you know, lustrous hair, full lips, bright eyes, like healthy, energetic, all these kinds of things. All those features are actually indicative of fertility in sort of a general sense. So men are not actually being shallow when they're just going for the hot babe. There's actually a basic biological predisposition for this because it is actually maximizing the likelihood that they're going to have their genes go out into future generations and so on. Wow. 
That's very. So I, I do have one other question. You did talk about Brian has five kids, by the way. I'm just talking about that. I don't. I don't wear. I don't wear underarm deodorant or cologne. But I eat clean, and that's. I'm going to bring it back to my question. Right? You mentioned you have two identical twins, and the only difference could be sometimes the way they eat. Does that play into? You know, we talked about masking with cologne. Does that play into sort of odor and things like that? The way people are eating with health. Um, absolutely makes the, so basically we have a couple of different kinds of sweat. So you have the basics. We have kind of watery sweat and that has to do with like if let's say you were running and so on and then you came in all sweaty so the smell of your t-shirt there would be like mainly water sweat and that's going to carry predominantly the metabolites of things that you have been eating so if you've been eating garlic or curry or other spices your t-shirt's going to have those smells now the body odor in particular actually that's key for these sort of more sexual features is actually underarm odor in particular and then around where the sex organs are mm -hmm. so that is actually so it actually takes sexual maturity for those kinds of um body odor secreting glands to be fully formed so so you probably notice that when your kids are young their underarm sweat doesn't smell the same as when, when they go through puberty it changes and that's because there's actually things that are happening physically that are changing to make their body odor different after after that but what's going on is basically this genetic blueprint is um producing so these chemicals that are on your skin and we all have bacteria that are living on us all the time and the bacteria are basically eating our the little stuff that comes off of our skin and then the bacteria are producing an odor as a as a byproduct of them nibbling on us um, and the little chemicals that are covering us and it's the smell from the bacteria that we're actually detecting which is why immediately let's say after you shower that you can't really smell that but then it, it comes back um, because if you washed off the bacteria, but, but they, well, we need these bacteria. These are all good bacteria and everything like that. But the main difference between the two identical twins would be if one's eating a ton of spices and curry and garlic and the other one's just eating potatoes and bread and, you know, bananas or something like that, then their body odor would smell different as a function of what they're eating. And potentially also, though, to the extent that the, what they're eating is influencing their health, that could then be another secondary feature. Huh. <laughs> thank you. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else about smell that we haven't asked you that you think is fascinating that we should know about? <laughs> well, I think that there's a ton of fascinating things about the sense of smell that everyone should know about. And actually, you can find out more about it in my book, uh, The Scent of Desire, Discovering Our Enigmatic Sense of Smell. It's basically everything that you ever wanted to know about your sense of smell. <laughs> will be found in this book. And um, another book I recently wrote, actually most recently, is called Why You Eat What You Eat, uh, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. And that's all about how our relationship with food is affected by our senses, smell being one, and taste, obviously, but also what we see, how we hear, even touch, and then all the psychology that goes into our experience with eating and even the neuroscience that goes into our experience of eating. So this, this is uh, my most recent book. And, and in between, I have this book called That's Disgusting, which is actually surprising you to know. I got the idea for this because I was judging the National Rotten Sneakers Contest. <laughs> 
which I have continued to do. And it's held annually in New York City at Ripley's Believe It or Not in Times Square. But this year it's held in March. And as you might guess, it was canceled. So there were no rotten sneakers. But, but it turns out that the emotion of disgust is a taste-based emotion. It actually evolved as a function of our rejection of bitter taste. So everything I do is kind of interconnected. Our senses, our biology, our mind, that's what I'm interested in. So fascinating. Thank you so much again, Rachel. I really, really appreciate it. Well, Please stay safe and, and be well during this time. You too. And thank you very much for having me on.